Salut, bonjour, and welcome, bienvenue, to the fifth episode in the City Breaks Bordeaux series, which I'm going to call Finding World War II in Bordeaux Today. Because, although you might not think it when you wander the elegant streets and sit in the little squares drinking wine, Bordeaux was an absolute hotbed of wartime intrigue, occupied by the Germans, but also with not a few resistance groups and spies sent over from the UK and the US. So really, lots of fascinating stories to be told. And on this episode, I'm proposing to do a little history and then talk through three, well, actually two and a half, really, but we'll come to that, places in the city today that you can look round to find out more. The broader background to this starts in 1940, when attacks by Germany on France are becoming very strong up in the north. But really, by the middle of 1940, it's been having a big effect on Bordeaux too. On the 9th of June, for example, the French National Bank, the Banque de France, transferred south to Bordeaux, followed by politicians, journalists, all keen to get away from the Germans, followed, of course, by lots of ordinary people, so that Bordeaux was soon overwhelmed by refugees from Belgium, from Holland, from Alsace and other parts of northern France. The president, one Albert Lebrun, talked at the time about the uncertainty of the news, l'incertitude des nouvelles, as he put it, l'avance allemande, the German advance, l'afflux des réfugiés, the influx of refugees. Tout cela, he said, all of that is creating un grand malaise, lots of problems. And there was a week or so in the middle of June when everything came to a head. So by this stage, the government was set up in Bordeaux. On the 17th of June, Maréchal Pétain formed a new government, one that was going to negotiate with the Germans. But the very next day, there's General de Gaulle in London at the BBC, making his radio appeal for the French to rise up and resist the Germans. On the day after that, the 19th of June, Bordeaux was bombed, more than 60 people were killed, a move seen as putting pressure on the French government to sign the armistice. A hint, if you like, of how things were going to be if they didn't give in. And indeed then, on June the 25th, the armistice was duly signed. That meant the end of hostilities, but it also meant the beginning of German occupation of the country. The day was declared a day of national mourning. There was a service held in Bordeaux at the Saint-André Cathedral, and Bordeaux, along with much of the surrounding area, La Gironde, found itself in the occupied zone. German soldiers arrived in large numbers into the city, and pretty much overnight everything changed. Signs were now in German, German flags were flying, German radio being broadcast through the city, and big changes in daily life. A curfew, shortages, the Germans requisitioned most of the fuel, so transport pretty much came to a halt. There was rationing. And when you hear the quantities of food that people were allowed, you wonder how they managed at all. 250 grams of bread per day for women and children. That's about one baguette each. 100 grams of meat per month. Practically no milk or butter or cheese or vegetable oils. People grew what they could. They went out to the countryside to buy produce. A black market sprang up. Daily life was very, very different. I found a good summary of it, actually, on a website called janeanson.com, where she has a post on World War II in Bordeaux. I'll put the link to it in the show notes and on the blog post, but here, as a taster, is a paragraph from it. Within hours of arrival, the invading army had set up checkpoints, requisitioned homes, 
unfurled Nazi flags, taken control of the port and set up gun emplacements. The French government was in Bordeaux to witness all of this, having fled Paris two weeks earlier on June the 10th. The port teemed with soldiers and the city as a whole was crammed with refugees, many from northern France who had arrived on foot in fear of the occupying army, sweeping them out of their homes. A bit later she goes on to describe how the shops emptied out, there was practically nothing to buy, and how this wasn't helped by the fact that German soldiers were buying up fabrics and jam and coffee and chocolate, all the things that were short at home, and sending it back to their families in Germany. Bordeaux was bombed about 20 times during the war, by, in fact, the Allies, so the British and the Americans, because they were well aware that the Germans were there using the strategic advantage of the harbour and the ports, and so, of course, they wanted to stop them. After one particularly bad bombing of the submarine base in 1943, when lots of people were killed, 3,000 children were evacuated from the city out to the countryside. And while life was difficult for everyone in the city, Bordeaux citizens and refugees alike, it was, of course, particularly terrible for one section of the population, the Jews. Anti-Jewish laws, of course, came in all over occupied France, and in Bordeaux it has to be said that the mayor, Adrien Marquet, went along with all of this, and after the war was actually labelled as having been anti-Semitic. As early as September 1940, a German order required that all Jews should label their businesses Hang notices outside in German and in French reading Jüdisches Geschäft, which is the German for Jewish business. They appeared all over the city and many of these shops eventually were attacked, had their windows smashed in and their goods stolen. A series of strict anti-Jewish laws were passed in 1941, forcing them, for example, to have the word Jew stamped on their ID cards, forbidding them from owning telephones or radio receivers, eventually in July 1941, forbidding them from visiting public places at all, restaurants, cafes, parks, etc. There were anti-Jewish articles in the local papers, for example, La Petite Gironde in January 1942, where they printed this sentence. We know that whatever misery, bankruptcy, financial ruin, scandal or war befalls us, we should always suspect the Jews. Later that year, there was an exhibition held in Bordeaux called Le Juif et la France, The Jew and France, which had been opened in Paris and then moved to Bordeaux and was on between the middle of March and the middle of May at the Art Museum, which is now the Musée des Beaux-Arts, opened by the mayor himself, Adrien Marquet, and full of anti-Jewish propaganda. Immediately after that, on the 29th of May 1942, it was decreed all over France that Jews had to wear the yellow star, and it was then too that roundups of Jews began. In Bordeaux, for example, was issued the following statement All Jews of both sexes wearing the yellow star between the ages of 16 and 45 are to be arrested by the French police between the 6th and 8th of July and interned at Merignac camp. Merignac is just outside the city of Bordeaux. You might recognize the name because it's where the airport is. Between 1942 and 1944, there were 14 convoys from Bordeaux to the death camps, so nearly 1,700 people, including over 200 children, were taken forcibly from Bordeaux to imprisonment in the concentration camps, where most of them died. It's quite difficult to take it all in, so I thought I might just give a couple of case studies. This one is about a man who was a Bordeaux citizen, 
Joseph Monzacar, who was born in 1862 in Bordeaux, studied at the university there, where he later worked for 37 years as a professor in the Faculty of Law. In fact, he was the deputy to the mayor too. But he was Jewish, so none of that counted for anything. First he was stripped of his public office, then his home and all his belongings were seized. He and his wife were arrested on February 6th, 1944, taken to Merignac and then deported from there to Auschwitz on the 20th of May 1944, where they both died in the gas chambers. As you can imagine, there were various reactions to all of this. Most people, as most of us would, kept their heads down, tried to just get on with daily life. But in addition, there were two main groups which formed, those who decided they would collaborate with the Germans and those who wanted to resist them. There were groups, for example, known as Les Amis du Maréchal, the Friends of the Marshal, so they were for the Pétain government, pro-German. The Milice arrived in Bordeaux in 1943, so French civilians, but trained by the German army to uphold their laws. And then, opposing them, the resistance. Ordinary people who did things like scribbling inscriptions on walls against the Germans, tearing down posters, booing in cinemas, and gradually, especially from 1941, more organised groups who did all kinds of different things, gathering information to send to the Allies, for example, organising escape networks, perhaps for Jewish people, or for Allied troops who needed to escape so they could continue the fight. All of them facing the direst of consequences if they were caught. There were lots of arrests, interrogations by the Gestapo, imprisonment, deportations, executions. Here's just one story of one man as an example of the terrible things which were going on. This is one Israel Leitzer Karp, who was the very first person to be executed in Bordeaux for an act of resistance. He was arrested on the 24th of August 1940. His offence? Insulting a German drum major. The troops were marching past to raise their flag at the Saint-Jean station. The German commander accused him of attacking the drum major with a stick. Other eyewitnesses later said in fact they'd only seen him shaking his fist at him. But he was swiftly arrested, imprisoned and, just three days later, executed. And notices of his execution were printed on red paper, plastered all across the city to make it clear to everyone what would happen to you if you defied the Germans. I'd like to recommend a book I read called Game of Spies by Paddy Ashdown, which is a factual book but reads quite like a novel and is a picture of life in wartime Bordeaux. It's subtitled The Secret Agent, The Traitor and The Nazi. So that gives you an idea of how it writes of all the different factions operating in the city. In fact, it's an account of three main characters, actual people. The secret agent was one Roger Landes, who was, I think, Anglo-French, and had been sent back to Bordeaux by British Special Operations to spy, to get information, to send it back to them. And then there's a man high up in the Bordeaux resistance called André Grand Clément, who by the end has become a traitor, been recruited by the Germans and been responsible for a lot of damage. And the third main character is German, Friedrich Dozer, who was in charge of counter-espionage on the German side in Bordeaux. And it's the story of how the three of them operated during the period, came up against each other and what happened in the end. 
and there are just so many scenes described which give you a picture of Bordeaux in wartime. Here, for example, is an extract describing one night when British RAF planes came to drop supplies for French resistance workers to pick up. In fact, this particular extract wasn't written by Paddy Ashdown himself. He's quoting an account written by one of the resistance workers who was there on the night. Quote, I felt a lurch of silent elation. The noise got closer and closer. It seemed to invade us. Then the black shape was above us, and then it was gone and we could no longer hear it. Suddenly we felt deflated. But Dubouet explained that he was circling round so as to confuse the Germans about the exact location of the landing site. He was away so long that I began to wonder if it had just been a German plane returning to base. But the pessimism didn't last long, because suddenly there he was above us, his engines quiet now, as he half glided in for the drop. The night was suddenly full of the clack of silk openings as eight parachutes appeared above us. A few seconds later, we heard the heavy thuds of the containers hitting the ground, and then the night was silent again. The aircraft had gone. In a few hours, the pilot would be back on free soil again in England. How we all wished we could be there too. It is a marvellous book, I do recommend it, and I'll make sure the details are in the show notes and in the blog post on the website so that you can find it. A bit later on in the book, there's a description of how Roger Landes trained his team, all the people who were going to work on his behalf in the area, and it gives you quite a flavour of the dangers that they were facing. Quote, This training included how to spot when they were being followed, what to do to shake off a pursuer, how to deal with an agent provocateur, and, if captured, how to resist interrogation. New fighters were also taught the difference between a live letterbox, run by a person and usually located in a place where comings and goings wouldn't attract attention, such as a shop or a public facility, and a dead letterbox, unmanned, a place to leave a message which could be collected later, such as a crack in a wall or under a rock. Then there were all the rules governing how to meet each other without attracting attention. No one should ever try to approach a colleague who ignored them in the street. The signal to abort a street meeting because of danger was to pretend to study a nearby shop window for a short period, then walk away. Anything abnormal about the setting of the shutters on a house indicated danger. If a meeting was arranged with someone who was unknown, then at the first attempt the meeting should be allowed deliberately to fail. In this way, the person in question could be followed and the rendezvous observed for traps or ambushes. And Landes and his men did lots of work, particularly in the run-up to the liberation. In a two-day period in the summer of 1944, for example, they carried out 76 different sabotage operations on railway cuttings and bridges and roads. And here, then, a description of what they got up to on the 6th and 7th of June. Quote, they ambushed a German convoy heading north along the Route Nationale 137 towards the Normandy beaches, cutting all the main rail lines out of Bordeaux, dynamiting 11 locomotives in the Bordeaux suburb of Pessac, blowing up the main telecommunication cables running north from the city, attacking the headquarters for the port, severing 15 high-tension electricity cables across the region, and cutting the main telephone line serving the chateau which acted as the headquarters of the German First Army under General von der Chevalerie. And yes, then, the liberation of Bordeaux did follow later in the month. 
June the 6th had been D-Day, of course, and by the 18th of August, generally, German troops were ordered to withdraw from France. On the 22nd of August, the German explosives depot was blown up, not, as you might think, by the resistance, but by one of the Germans, Heinz Stahlschmidt, who said later that he had thought that destroying the port of Bordeaux at that stage would have been a crime. And then the big day for Bordeaux, the 28th of August, the day when the city was liberated. The Germans had until midnight on that day to leave the city, and at one minute past midnight, along came the FFI, the Force Française de l'Intérieur. So, French troops back in charge. Cue amazing celebrations, dancing in the streets, the singing of patriotic songs, etc. Although it was, of course, not the end of all the troubles. On the 31st of August, the new paper, Sud-West had printed the optimistic sentence On va vers des jours meilleurs, better days are coming, but in fact it did take quite a while. So gradually fuel was back under French control, the trains and trams restarted, as did the telephones, but there were still major shortages of basic foods. In fact there was quite a lot of unrest, such that on the 5th of September the curfew was reinstated in a measure to try and keep things calm. And the very next day, on the 6th of September, a new young general arrived, one Jacques Chabon-Delma, his task being to re-establish authority in the city. And if you know the name from a previous podcast, you may remember that he eventually was mayor of the city of Bordeaux, a post which he held for 48 years. Amazing. On the 17th of September, General de Gaulle himself made a morale-boosting visit to Bordeaux, and a speech, of course, when he talked about bringing back ordre et réconciliation, order and reconciliation in what he referred to as this major port open to the ocean. So very much the hope that Bordeaux was going to get back to the role it had played before the war, a trading city open to the rest of the world. And although there were German troops in the Gironde area right up until the spring of 1945, it can certainly be said that that wonderful day in August was the beginning of the end. So that's the story in a nutshell. What about places that you can visit today to find out more? Certainly, the first one is something called the Bassin à Flot, the submarine base, which played such an important part during the war. It was set up as early as June 1940, so as soon as the Germans had arrived in the city, and at first the submarines were used for long journeys to far-off places, Indonesia and South America, in search of raw materials for the German war effort. But gradually it became used for more military purposes, and in September 1941 the Germans began building new U-boat bunkers here. Six and a half thousand people worked day and night for 19 months to build 11 submarine docks and a huge power station where the German U-boat flotilla could be based, and from which they could run their attack missions. I think I read that at one point there were 43 German submarines based here, making Bordeaux such a target for the Allied planes that they needed a huge anti-aircraft defence system and bomb shelters. The whole setup was operational for two years or so, right up until August 1944, by which time the last U-boats had retreated, the flotilla had been disbanded, and the troops had abandoned the bunker. So that as soon as Bordeaux was liberated, the base was handed back to the French Navy, and then eventually to the port of Bordeaux. It wasn't decommissioned until 1982, but it lay pretty much unused until 2018, when things took quite an unexpected turn, 
Four of the bunkers were handed over to an organisation called Culture Spaces and it became a digital art centre, one that you can visit today, known as the Bassin des Lumières, which opened in, I think it was 2020, and which hosts big digital art shows in this very particular and unusual setting. I'll talk a little bit more about that in an upcoming episode on art in Bordeaux. So yes, if you're interested in the war, definitely go to visit the Bassin Flow where you can look round, lots of information panels, and of course the main thing, just see the bunkers and the submarine bases and imagine what went on there during those dark years. A second place to visit is the synagogue. You can go inside. I'll provide a link for that in the show notes and on the website too. There are guided tours available, or you can just go along and look from the outside which tells you already quite a lot, because you'll find a huge plaque on a wall in the forecourt of the synagogue dedicated to the members of Bordeaux's Jewish community who lost their lives between 1940 and 1944. It mentions particularly the date of the 10th of January 1944, when the building was attacked, desecrated and turned into a prison. There was another terrible attack on the 15th of March 1944, described by an eyewitness as follows. On that day, SS troops from the Großdeutschland Division burst into the synagogue armed with axes and submachine guns. They demolished the wooden panelling, the pulpit, the organ, the harmonium and the pews. They smashed the windows and chandeliers into thousands of pieces and loaded the wooden panelling onto trucks to be taken away and burned. The place was reduced to little more than rubble, defensive fortifications and barbed wire and also remembered on the plaque the ghost train of July 1944, one of the last mass transits of the entire war, taking prisoners to the Dachau concentration camp. Hundreds of people had been imprisoned in the former synagogue, resistance fighters, Jews from Central Europe, Jewish citizens from Bordeaux itself, and they were all forced onto a train at Saint-Jean station in Bordeaux on the 9th of August, then taken to Dachau on a journey so terrible that about half of them died before they arrived and most of the rest didn't survive the camp, even though this was only a month before the liberation of France. On my visit to Bordeaux, I fully intended to go and visit the synagogue, but as it happened, I came across it by chance. I walked up a side road off the Cour Victor Hugo and became aware that there were armed policemen guarding something. As we got a bit nearer, we realised it was the synagogue, where a service was just finishing. What a shock to realise that even today, 80 years after the end of the war, they still feel that they have to provide armed guards for the service to take place. And the third place I wanted to mention is slightly trickier because it's currently closed. That is the Centre Jean Moulin, a museum all about World War II in Bordeaux and particularly about the work of the resistance who were headed by Jean Moulin. He was the first president of the Conseil National de la Résistance. If you're listening to this soon after it's been recorded, in June 2023, the current situation is that the museum is closed, has been closed for renovations for a couple of years, and that it's proving quite difficult to get an opening date. But I still wanted to give a little bit of information about it, because I am assured that it will be reopening, so watch this space. It was and will be again a documentation centre and a museum on the resistance, deportation, the work of the Free French Forces. Full of photographs and memorabilia donated often by resistance members and 
people who were deported. And I had a look at what the previous museum contained, just to give a flavour and perhaps an idea of what to expect when it reopens, although presumably it will be bigger and better in many different ways. Anyway, the original one was over three floors, and I came across a review on, I think it was TripAdvisor, which explained what was on them. The ground floor full of firearms, an old World War II jeep, an exhibit on underground printing presses, such as the French Resistance used, and lots of other World War II items. At the time this person visited, the second floor was being used for a temporary exhibit called 1917, Voilà les Américains, Here Come the Americans, which documented the role that the USA played in the war and particularly in the liberation. And then on the top floor, more material about the occupation of France and especially on the resistance and the work of the Free French Forces and the liberation. So certainly by the sound of it, somewhere of great interest for anybody who wants to find out about World War II and Bordeaux. All I can suggest is that you watch this space. I thought it would be fitting to end the episode with some rousing words from the speech given by General de Gaulle on that day in September 1944 when he arrived to visit the newly liberated city. This is part of what he said. The dreadful nightmare which engulfed your city and all of France these last four years has at last blown away. The nightmare of invasion, of capitulation, of servitude has gone leaving behind a France once again free, once again indomitable, once again proud. During these terrible and hopeless months, it was not just our tears, our suffering and our rage which motivated us, but also our courage, our sacrifices, our passion. To see us now, to see what we have become, to see each other with clear eyes, this is all that is necessary to understand that henceforth our unity can never be broken. Let us then sing those words which mean much more than a thousand speeches. Let us sing together the great hymn of the nation, La Marseillaise. There followed apparently a thunder of voices as the citizens of Bordeaux celebrated the taking back of their city. Yes, 80 years ago, but still a stirring story, I think you'll agree. That's more or less it for today's episode then. So I'll just give a little pointer to next month when I'm going to do a piece on Bordeaux and all its connections to wine. A little bit of history, lots on places to visit, be they museums or shops or vineyards or just squares in the city where you can sit under an umbrella and enjoy a glass of Bordeaux's most famous product. Probably talk a little bit about the wine festival too and there'll even be mention of a Bordeaux-centred book on a wine scandal which has the intriguing title, the book that is, not the scandal, of Billionaires of Vinegar. So, lots to look forward to, and I hope you'll be able to join me for that. For the moment, though, please don't forget the website. There'll be a blog post to go with this episode. And also, I am beavering away in the background, adding posts for all the other cities, which were originally just dealt with by podcast, but which I think should have more of a presence on the website too. So do go and have a browse, if you have a moment. Meanwhile, though, just thank you for your company and I look forward to you joining me again in a few short weeks to hear the story of Bordeaux and its wine. Merci, au revoir.